tried last week to build some excitement before we read by appealing to you uh, based on the joy that comes in reading God's word. Maybe you remember I talked to you about how it's sweet like honey. Remember I, I said, I want, I want you to enjoy this because God's word to us is satisfying. It's sweet like honey. And then uh, yesterday in my daily Bible reading, I came to Ezekiel chapter 3 is just part of the plan. And chapter 3 verse 1 says this, He said to me, Son of man, eat what you find. Eat this scroll and go speak to the house of Israel. So I opened my mouth and he fed me the scroll. He said to me, Son of man, feed your stomach and fill your body with this scroll which I am giving you. Then I ate it and it was sweet as honey to my mouth. It's what I want our study of God's word to be. It's what I want your daily reading to be. I want you to eat the the book, eat the scroll, and let it be sweet like honey to you. Well, this week we're going to dive into the text of Colossians. We're only going to eat a small portion today, though. In fact, we're just going to look at verses 1 and 2. And these verses are among those that we have a tendency to want to skip over entirely or at least rush through very quickly dismiss them as if they are relatively unimportant. We're not going to do that today for a few reasons. Now, I know we've talked about this recently as we introduced and then finished up a study of Philemon, but it bears repeating. We believe that all scripture is inspired by God, right? That it is breathed out of the very mouth of God. Our God, our creator, our father, our redeemer has spoken, and we as his people want to hang on every word he has said, right? And we believe that all scripture is profitable to us in a number of ways. Sometimes it teaches us, sometimes it rebukes us, sometimes it corrects us, sometimes it trains us. All scripture is useful to us, even these introduction, formal introductions to ancient letters. Like it says in 2 Timothy chapter 3, all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Now, we in this room would all amen this concept of all Scripture, and today we get a chance to act like we believe it. If we claim to be people of the book, and Southern Baptists claim to be people of the book, then we really need to be people of the book. There's a danger in making a claim like that. There's a danger in taking on an identity that would say we are people of the book and then largely ignoring the book or ignoring large sections of the book. If we are going to be people of the book, we want to really be people of the book. So let's take time to see what's here for us today. If it's all profitable, may not all be glamorous, may not all be real exciting, but it is all profitable to us. There are no throwaway words, and this is certainly not a throwaway day as we study Colossians chapter 1 verses 1 and 2 today. This is what God's word says. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. Let's pray together. Father, we we believe that this is your word breathed out of your own mouth for us. We believe that it is beneficial for us, so we'll study it closely today. But we want to hear from you. And so we ask that you would speak with power and authority, that you would give us ears to hear what you have to say to us, and hearts that can receive it, and lives that are ready to obey it. We recognize that there are no throwaway words in your book, and there are no throwaway days when your people gather together 
So work here today. Change us and grow us for the sake of your name. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, so we're going to walk through each little, uh, each little phrase here, each little word. We're going to be introduced to a whole lot of people. And there are a whole lot of lessons to learn from all of those people. So we'll start with the Apostle Paul. Notice right off the bat, he says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. This is the author of the letter, the Apostle Paul. And we want to think about him for a minute so we know uh, from whom these words are coming. Ultimately, come from God, but they're coming through the Apostle Paul. And when we first met this guy in the scriptures, he was absolutely terrorizing the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. He was endorsing the stoning of Stephen, who was the first martyr. You remember young Saul, who later became the Apostle Paul, was standing there holding the coats, giving his hearty approval of the stoning of that faithful servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then after that, he built a reputation as one who would go to great lengths to stop the spread of the gospel. Bottom line, when we first meet the author of this letter in the scriptures, he was an enemy of the church. He was an enemy of God. But something changed. And in Acts chapter 9, we see the turning point in Paul's life. He was traveling to a certain city with letters of authority from religious leaders to cause trouble amongst the church there. To arrest and persecute followers of the Lord Jesus Christ in that city. And yet on the road to that city, he met the Lord Jesus in a way that changed him forever. He was confronted with his sin and his unbelief. He repented and came to faith in Jesus In in other words, bottom line, on the road to Damascus that day, the Apostle Paul got saved. And he didn't just get saved. He didn't just get a new relationship with Jesus Christ. He didn't just get forgiveness of his sins. He got a clear commissioning to take the message of the gospel to the Gentiles specifically. He became the apostle to the Gentiles. He was called by God to preach the message of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the very ends of the earth. And he says in this introductory statement that this authority and this calling did not come from men. It didn't originate with men. It didn't come from Peter or James or John. They're not the ones that called him to be an apostle, but he is an apostle by the will of God. And as an apostle by the will of God, he speaks with authority. He speaks the very word of God to the people of God. And he introduces himself that way in this letter. Now, it's interesting to me that right off the bat in this letter, Paul owns that apostolic authority. It's almost as if right off the bat, he flexes this apostolic muscle to set the tone for the rest of the letter. Now, that stands in stark contrast to the companion letter to Philemon that we just finished studying. Studying, Because in that letter, he seems to try to avoid at all costs any explicit reference to his apostolic authority. He seems to set that aside and rather appeal to Philemon as a brother and a fellow worker. But here, right off the bat, he identifies himself, Paul, an apostle. And that means you listen. And you listen closely. Because what is about to be given is not a simple appeal. It is not his opinion. It is the word of God for the people of God. Now... As we think about the Apostle Paul, aside from that last bit about apostolic authority, Paul's story is a lot like your story if you are in Christ Jesus. You were an enemy of God. You were confronted with your sin and unbelief. You repented and came to faith in Christ. You got saved. 
And you didn't just get saved. You didn't just get a new relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. He sent you out with the message of the gospel to the nations to communicate the hope of salvation in Christ alone to your neighbors and to the nations. So sometimes when we think about Paul's story, we think, oh man, that's a great story. There's no way my story is anything like that. No, no, no. Your story, if you are in Christ, is just like that. So therefore, praise the Lord. If you are in Christ, praise the Lord that he took you, an enemy of his, and made you his friend. More than a friend, he made you his child. He adopted you into the family. And he sent you out on a mission. Praise the Lord for that and do what he's called you to do. He's called you to be a witness. He's called you to be a witness to your family, to your neighbors, to your co-workers, to your city. Be a witness like he has called you to. Maybe the other thing that we need to think about when we talk about the Apostle Paul here is that there is hope for all kinds of people. This guy was terrorizing the church, and yet God saved him, called him, sent him out to be effective all over the world. You know anybody like the Apostle Paul? You know anybody like the pre-converted Apostle Paul? Is there any character in your life that is just always causing trouble for believers? Anybody in your life that you maybe have said, oh man, there is no hope. There is no hope that they could ever come to faith in Christ and follow him. Don't do that. Don't do that with anybody. Because if he can change me, if he can change Paul, if he can change a bunch like us, he can change absolutely anybody. And if you're here today and you think you're like pre-converted Paul, you feel like, whoa, I am just such an enemy of God. I've done so much. I'm so dirty. I've burnt so many bridges. I've done so many people wrong. There's no way God could ever forgive me. I want you to, to know that there is hope for all kinds of people today. That God's grace is sufficient for you to cover all of your sins. And not only, not only is he glad and willing to forgive you of your sins and to make you his child, he's willing to use you for his kingdom. Even with all of your baggage, even with all of your background, even with that old dead life you used to have, he is willing and glad to use you for the sake of his kingdom to take the gospel to the nations. There's nobody outside of his reach. There's nobody beyond hope. Nobody who will repent and believe, that is. Anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So we see Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. And notice at the end of verse 1, he includes Timothy, our brother, and Timothy, our brother. Now, in many ways, Timothy was Paul's son in the faith. He was Paul's protege. Timothy is not an apostle, was not an apostle, but he will take, take the baton from Paul and continue his work, though without this expressed apostolic authority. I think Paul's mention of Timothy points to two things in this text. First, Paul is going to take every opportunity to endorse Timothy as the one who will carry on when he is gone. He's going to take every opportunity to drop Timothy's name as a way to endorse him as a faithful, trusted leader. Because Paul knows that his days are numbered. Paul knows that he won't be able to lead these places forever. He knows that he is limited, and so he is giving his endorsement of this young leader to carry on. And second... By mentioning Timothy, Paul is teaching that he's not a maverick. He's not some loose cannon that's out there on his own. Paul has meaningful partnerships which provide accountability and consensus in ministry. 
In other words, as he expounds the glories of the gospel, he's not on his own. This is not just one unique thought about Jesus and what he has done for us. No, this is the thought of every trusted leader. This is the consensus of orthodoxy. So Paul and Timothy in verse 1. Then we see the recipients in verse 2. He says, to the saints. Now the very first way the recipients of this letter are identified is as saints. And that is highly significant. The root of this word is the word for holy and essentially means to be separated or set apart. I I remember when I was in school and learning uh, Greek and Hebrew, I remember them teaching us about this word for holy. And the professor used the image of cutting a carrot, like on a cutting board, cutting a carrot and then sliding it over. And he said, "That's, that's the kind of the picture of what it means to be holy, separated and set apart. That's what we are as God's people. We're separated and set apart for his special use. Now, John Phillips, uh, trusted preacher, I think, said this about the word holy or saints. He says, we need to emancipate the word saints from the false concepts which have clung to it as a result of centuries of false teaching." I think he's on to something, because when we hear that word, we need to recognize that contrary to what the Roman Catholic Church teaches... This text and several other texts in the scriptures indicate that everyone who is in Christ is a saint. Everyone who has been saved by grace through faith in Christ is a saint. This is not some special level of spiritual maturity. It's not some special level of righteous living. It's not something that is restricted for folks who perform posthumous miracles. No. It's not about anything. That you have done at all. It's about what Christ has done for you. It's about being in Christ. If you are in Christ, you're a saint. The urban theologian Lecrae says it like this Hagios, New Testament. Inherently, the word means to be holy. We know that we're not holy on our own terms, but Christ's blood makes us holy. So, because he satisfied the wrath of God, the beef has been crushed. Now we got a new identity called a saint. That's what I want to affirm in you. If you are in Christ, you're a saint. The rest of that song, the the, uh, chorus of that song just simply repeats, I'm a saint, I'm a saint, I'm a saint, I'm a saint. And you may hear me as I'm running down the road someday saying that over and over again as he's saying it in my ear. I'm not crazy. I'm a saint. I'm a saint, not because I'm holy, not because I'm righteous, but because Jesus Christ has rescued me. I am in Christ, and I am therefore a holy one, cut apart, separated for his purpose. This is not a special level of spiritual maturity. If you are in Christ, you are a saint. Own that identity. Own that identity that he would refer to you that way, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. Own that identity as what you are in Christ and live like it. Like, it would be crazy for me to be ugly to people while I'm running along saying, I'm a saint, I'm a saint, right? It'd be crazy to me for me to be selfish and ugly while claiming to be a saint. It would be crazy for me to cheat on my wife while I'm claiming to be a saint. It would be crazy for me to act like a demon while I claim to be a saint, right? And so what I'm, what I'm saying is, own your identity as a saint. If you are in Christ, you are a saint. Own that identity 
And then live like it. Live like it. Because that's who you are. Next he says, to the saints and faithful brethren who are in Christ, who are at Colossae. This is the second way the recipients are are identified. Notice the language of family, faithful brethren. We are holy. We are separated. We are set apart. But being separated and set apart, we are brought together with this new family. So, So don't think that your saintliness, your holiness, means you are set apart and isolated. Remember that picture I painted of cutting carrot and sliding it over? Well, he's done that with you. He's cut you and slid you over, but now you're in a whole pile of cut carrots over here, right? He's not just separated you out so you live in isolation all alone. No, he's separated you. He set you apart in a whole pile of other people who've been separated and set apart. He's gathered us together as the body of Christ. We are a family. And within this family, there's great diversity. But Jesus brings us together And in bringing us together, he breaks down the walls that would normally uh, divide us. Think about that here in particular. When you read the background of the Apostle Paul, he's about as Jewish as you can get. In in fact, he claims that of himself, right? A Hebrew of Hebrews when he thinks about his background. There's nobody more Jewish in his background than Paul, right? And yet he's writing this letter to the church at Colossae, which is primarily made up of Gentile people. When in all the world would a man who has Jewish roots call a Gentile his brother? In the church. That's the only place where those kind of things happen. It's the only place where people who would normally be at odds with each other. You know what a Jew would call a Gentile normally? Dog. Not brother. Dog. And yet Paul, in his Jewish background, says to these believers in Colossae with their Gentile background, he says... We're brothers. We are family. We are faithful brethren. I want you to know that's what the gospel does. It doesn't just break down the walls between us and God and reconcile us to him. It brings us together as a family. Brothers and sisters, despite our differences, despite our diversity, he brings us together with a new identity. We got a new identity called a saint. We got a new identity called a brother, a family. We need to recognize that. Notice the adjective, too. He calls them faithful brethren. I think that indicates that Paul is not writing this letter to a group of people who are on the edge of abandoning their faith. I don't think it's quite like the church at Galatia who have, by and large, embraced this false gospel. I think, rather, he's saying this is to the church at Colossae, a group of faithful brethren who have a danger of some false teaching. There's a danger of some some lies that are being spread in their midst. But they haven't bought it yet. They haven't gone into it yet. Rather, he's writing them this letter so that they don't go over the edge. They are faithful brethren, steadfast brethren, and they need more gospel so they can be more certain of the truth of the gospel. So he, he identifies these recipients as saints and faithful brethren, and then he says something really interesting. He says, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are at Colossae. In Christ, at Colossae. Now, spiritually speaking, these people are in Christ. That's their location spiritually. They are in Christ. Physically or geographically, they are at Colossae. That's their location at Colossae. And these two locations are important. Both of them are important. But they are not equally 
important. Does that make sense? So we are the same way. If we are followers of Jesus, we are in Christ at Harrisburg. In Christ at Galatia, Raleigh, or wherever you are. In Christ at Harrisburg. And both of those things are important. Because if all we ever see is that we are in Christ and we forget all about Harrisburg, we are not fulfilling the mission that God has called us to, right? If, if all we ever see ourselves as is in Christ and we don't care about our community, we don't care about our neighborhood, we don't care about the nations, we're just in Christ and that's all that matters. We're just like those monks, those monks who would climb up to a cave on a cliff somewhere and have someone pulley them food up so they could just devote themselves entirely to Jesus. Is that effective? No. God has not called you to live in a cave. He's called you to live in Harrisburg. He's called you to be salt and light in Harrisburg. On the other hand, if we get so wrapped up in, in Harrisburg that we forget about being in Christ, we will look just like Harrisburg. We won't be any good for Harrisburg if we forget that we are also in Christ, if we are not living out both of these locations simultaneously. Are you with me on this? So I, I, I don't think it's a... Language kind of breaks down here because I want to talk to you about balance, that we need to keep both of these identities, both of these locations in balance, but they're not really balanced, right? Which is more important, in Christ or at Harrisburg? Duh, in Christ, right? That, that's most important. But that doesn't mean that at Harrisburg is unimportant. So as I was talking about this this week, um, a friend helped me, helped me see that it's kind of like a seesaw. Do you think I could seesaw with Asher? Yeah. If he gets way out on the end, he doesn't weigh much, but if he gets way out on the end and I get way up by the fulcrum of the seesaw, we can make it work, right? Well, that's the way it is with these two identities. In Christ is way heavier. It's way more significant but we don't ever want to forget about being at Harrisburg, all right? So there, there are groups that do this. There are groups that get it out of balance. The Amish, Mennonites, monks of ancient days, in Christ, but not really in the community. And there are other folks in our midst today who are in a community, but it's not clear they're in Christ. They're nominal Christians, cultural Christians, Carnal Christians, about a thousand, about a thousand people who claim to be members of First Baptist Church but have no connection with the church. Their names are on a roll, but we never see them. Are they in Christ? Are they even in Harrisburg? Like we don't know. We never see them. Now we can't say they're not in Christ. We can't say they're not in Harrisburg, but we can't say with confidence that they are. Because they're not connected with the body. And it certainly doesn't seem to be their primary identity. So one of the things that we're going to talk about today is, who are you? Are you a saint? Faithful brother? In Christ? At Harrisburg? Who are you? Paul is writing this letter to saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are at Colossae. And then this opening greeting goes like this. Grace to you and peace from God our Father. That's big stuff. Grace is unmerited favor. Grace is a gift that we do not deserve from God. What do we deserve from God? Only wrath, only judgment for all eternity. Why? Because we are sinners and he is holy. But what does he give us? 
love, mercy, and grace because he is full of love and mercy and grace. And so Paul greets these believers, these saints and faithful brothers with grace and peace. Peace is ultimately the result of that grace, right? Where there was once enmity and hostility, there is now unity and intimacy. And peace here is not just the absence of conflict, but the presence of harmony. He says to these saints and faithful brothers, grace to you and peace. Not just just the absence of fighting, the absence of war, but the presence of harmony and unity. And then notice that God is the source of all of it. Grace and peace from God our Father. Grace and peace comes from Him. We don't produce it. Rather, we receive it. And notice also He calls Him our Father. Grace and peace from God our Father. This familial relationship that we have with God is a wonderful thing. Think about this. The one true living God of all the universe the one who created everything that exists, the one who holds it all together, the one who placed every star in the sky and calls them all by name, the sovereign one who is worshipped by angels, myriads and myriads of angels, this one is our Father. That's pretty awesome, isn't it? The God of the universe is our Father. And notice also he says, he's our Father. Not just my Father, not just your Father, but our Father together. We, it makes us brothers and sisters. We have the same Father. It makes us brothers and sisters. And this is really a family. This new identity we have in Christ also means that we have a whole new family, a whole new bunch of brothers and sisters with God as our great Father over us all. So the question that we want to wrestle with today is who, who are you? Who are you? Are you a saint? Would you ever think of yourself that way? Some, some of you have no reason to think of yourself that way. You don't, you don't live like a saint for sure. And you've never trusted in Jesus Christ. So no, you're not. You're not a saint. But I want to talk to folks who are trusting in Jesus Christ. Would you ever think of yourself that way? I'm a saint. Homie, I'm a saint. Like that is is part of who we are. If we are in Christ, that is our identity. That's how he would address us as holy ones. Not because we're inherently holy, but because he makes us holy by his grace. Are you a saint? Are you a faithful brother? Part of the family? Steadfast? Trustworthy? Part of the family? What about in Christ at Harrisburg? Like, is, this, is this who you are? Are you just a guy that wanders in here once a week, halfway sings some songs, halfway listens to a message, and then just goes out of here completely unchanged? Or are you the kind of person that Paul is writing to? Saint, faithful brother in Christ, at Harrisburg. Well, I prayed this morning with the guys that we would receive this word as it is, 
and that some of us would receive it as a word of encouragement. That some of you would hear this today and say, yeah, that is, that is me. Not taking any credit for yourself, not puffing up with some kind of arrogance and pride, but say, yeah, that, that, that is who I am. I'm a saint, faithful brother in Christ at Harrisburg. That's who I am. And you walk away today encouraged, built up, edified, ready to go out and be a, a saint and faithful brother in Christ at Harrisburg. But that same word that can serve as an encouragement to one group of people in the room can serve as a word of rebuke and conviction to other people in the room. Some of you are listening to this and saying, no way, that's not who I am. Let me, let me tell you how to become a saint. You don't have to work a miracle. You don't have to die and then work a miracle after you die. You don't have to have 100 years of investigation from an official church. You don't have to get a medal that people will wear around their neck. You know how to become a saint? Repent of your sins and trust in Jesus Christ. You can be a saint today. Today, you become a saint as a gift of God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Today, you can become a faithful brother. Today, you can become in Christ at Harrisburg. You can get a new identity today. Repent of your sins, trust in Jesus Christ, and you'll be saved. I was reading some articles because I was fascinated about this whole, like when we start talking about saints, Catholic thought has influenced so much of the way we think about it. I was reading that not too many years ago, the Catholic Church revoked sainthood for a number of people. St. Christopher in particular not a saint anymore, according to the Catholic Church. Kind of like Pluto, not a planet anymore. Let me tell you, Jesus Christ makes you a saint. If Jesus Christ makes you a saint, then nobody can take that away. Nobody takes that away. And he can do it today. So I'm inviting you to repent of your sins and trust in Jesus Christ. And for those of you who have already, who are repenting and believing in Jesus be in Christ and at Harrisburg. Let's be in Christ and at Harrisburg. Let's not be so in Christ that we forget about Harrisburg, and let's not be so in Harrisburg that we forget about Christ, but let's live out this identity that is ours in Christ for the good of Harrisburg. We should make a difference in this town, and I believe we do. I believe if First Baptist Church was gone tomorrow, Harrisburg would suffer. And I'm telling you to go further with that. Be light. Be salt. Live out your identity in Christ at Harrisburg. And maybe you need to shift the balance a little bit so that that is clearer in your life. Let's stand together and pray. Father, help us in these minutes to, to consider deeply who we are in light of who you are. I, I want to pray for believers in the room that you will affirm their identity as saints, as faithful brothers who are in Christ at Harrisburg. I pray that you will help us to live out our identity in our community, that we would be salt and light, that we would make a difference by your grace, for your glory in this community. 
Pray for brothers and sisters who need to adjust the balance a little bit. That you'll give them grace. Teach them how to do that. And Father, we pray for men and women and boys and girls in this room who are lost. They are dead in their trespasses and sins. They are far from you. In fact, they, like the Apostle Paul, like all of us before our conversion, are enemies of yours. They are at odds with you. God, I pray today that you will work in their hearts, convict them of their sin, of their unbelief, convince them of your righteousness and your holiness. And then in the midst of that brokenness, in the midst of that conviction, I pray that you will turn their eyes to Jesus, that you will open their eyes to see Jesus dying in their place, suffering the punishment that they deserve for their sins so that they could be reconciled to you, so that they could be declared holy, so that they could be called saints and faithful brothers, so they could be adopted into your family. God, I pray that you will open their eyes to see Jesus dying for their sins, being buried, and then rising from the dead in victory over sin. And I pray that you will give them faith to believe in Jesus, to trust and depend entirely upon the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I pray that you'll give them repentance to turn away from that old, the old way, the old life, and turn toward you in righteousness, faithfulness, Christ-likeness. God, I pray that you'll grant this gift of grace for the sake of your own name, not just for the good of these people, but for the sake of your name, that you'll be glorified in the rescue of sinners, in the redemption, in the reconciliation of enemies, that you would be praised. Help us respond to your word today. In Christ's name we pray.